0: I was out drinking one evening with another content agency, and then I realized what we were creating was essentially what they have, and I wasn't happy with that. It set off a trigger in my head like, wow, I don't want what they have. I, I really just don't want I never wanted that in my life, what am I doing?
1: Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular, foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. A few years ago, when I was struggling to incorporate more creative work into my life, I spoke to my friend Shaz. I knew about his work as a filmmaker and book author, and that he had recently closed down his production studio in Singapore despite doing good work. It helped me think about creative careers in an entrepreneurial way, so I wanted to interview him for this podcast. Shaz talks about the importance of being part of a scene, the different ways you can make a living doing what you love, and why every filmmaker has a therapy piece. Sirid Hassan was born into a family of politicians and artists to an Indonesian dad and an Indian mom. In school, Shaz did a degree in media studies. He worked for British television networks, BBC and ITV for a few years, then got a job as a video paparazzi for a TV show.
0: I was a video paparazzi. I was just running after parties, like running after Justin Timberlake, running after all these minor celebrities. Well, the internet was starting to get more prevalent. So people could see like if you got Justin Timberlake on video coming out of some Playboy bar smashed, that could be also worth a lot of money. I was one of those video guys, but I didn't last long because I just didn't want to do it. I saw a couple of celebrities doing tons of drugs and I just felt bad for them basically, because <laughs> they were having a really good time. And I refused to film them because they just looked at me with like puppy dog eyes, said, please. and I, And I didn't. And then my boss just went mental at me, but it gave me a red carpet pass. So for about six months, I went on all of the red carpets in London, just filming everyone, Pierce Brosnan, George Clooney, all these kind of famous people. And it was good. It was good. It was good to understand the industry from that point of view, essentially how the mechanics of that industry works, the press, the marketing, the PR people, blah, blah, blah. And it was like a good insight, but I'm just... I'm just crap at it. I was absolutely crap at it. (laughs) Absolutely crap at it.
1: Meanwhile, a self funded film project Shaz was doing with Rio led them to Japan and afterwards setting up Studio Rarekind.
0: So at university, me and a group of friends just did music nights. So what we used to do was do hip hop nights and drum and bass and then house music nights. So we booked DJs, producers, guys from the States, guys from Europe. So we were part of the, and I just, indie party scene. And then after university, me and Rio, one of the guys in the crew were like, let's make a film. Let's make a film about music. So we, we initially wanted to make a film about hip hop in London. And then Rio basically being half Japanese, we started doing the numbers and we were like, it's cheaper to fly to Japan, hire the equipment in Japan and film a film in Japan than hire the equipment and do it in London. He we went to Japan to make this independent hip hop documentary We paid for it ourselves. When we came back and I managed to get some of it sold to French TV and a really respectable program that a lot of people knew. So I was just like, okay, there's money in this. And then people started contacting us. Oh, do you think you could do this? Do you think you could do that? And so it was like a natural thing. It was like, hold on, we can just do what we want to do. And people ask us to do jobs. So why, why just stay in a job? And Rio was working for one of the biggest branding agencies at the time called Wolf Olins, really, really huge branding agency. And it's just like, well, why not just do our own thing? Basically we were lucky, rents were cheaper then landlords were more forgiving. We had literally a very cool studio in a very cool place for not much money. And it's not like no one was making tons of cash, no way at all. But it was really fun.
1: Through Studio Rare Kind, Shaz and Rio were working with an NGO called Alive and Kicking and created jobs for people in Kenya. This is how their next independent project, Soccer Africa, came about.
0: So they just make footballs with political messages about AIDS and they'd just go out and do just on the field outreach things. So anything to do with education and me, Rio, and then there's a couple other guys involved who were just like massively inspired by this NGO. And we just did loads of work for them, like nothing major, lots of free stuff as well. They were a really, really cool NGO. We knew the South Africa World Cup was coming. So the fact that we've been working with all this footage from parts of Africa, African football, we need to go there ourselves, we want to make something ourselves. So we just cooked up an idea about like, oh, it'd be quite interesting to find out more about how a lot of these players come to Europe. And then we started doing our research and then you realize, oh wow, a lot of them are legally trafficked to Europe. So we just, we went on our kind of journalistic hats on and we just tried to find stories and we found them basically. Yeah, it had a really good impact. And I know the producers who helped fund it, they've shown it some great places. It's it's done its circle. It it was on TV, Al Jazeera, broadcast it a few times. I even saw it on maybe Singapore Airlines. I saw it on Singapore Airlines in 2012, 2013. So a lot of airlines bought it and I, I just saw it did really well. So I was quite proud of that.
1: And you mentioned it was a good budget for an indie film.
0: Definitely a good budget for an indie film. We're talking about 150, 200 grand. So a lot of money basically to just get that you know, first big doc, some would say you need higher budgets, but generally that's a decent budget for an indie doc. Very good budget for an indie doc. In my opinion, others would seriously disagree.
1: How does one raise funds for an indie film, aside from funding it yourself?
0: Good question. So I can imagine my producers listening to this. A lot of it is for us, that film was essentially privately funded by a couple of people who wanted to get a production company off the ground. And we've got quite lucky in the past. A lot of the times it's private. Sometimes it's like a little bit of telly. So some telly people will throw you a little bit to develop the idea and you take it further. So a lot of the time it's sort like an amalgamation of lots of different sources. Okay, we'll take like five grand off you, 10 grand off you, we'll make a teaser. Then we'll get the 20 grand, we'll go forward. It really is like a startup. And I think the best thing to do, and it takes a long time to understand this, is understanding where the film's going to live at the end. So there's no point making a super niche film and thinking it's going to go onto netflix you have to be very aware of essentially placing your film and then reverse engineering it's nice it's smarter to know that at the beginning you don't always have to but it's smarter to know beginning, in my opinion funnily enough that's that's pure inexperience but at the, at the time i would have said indie film cinema blah 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 but as we went through the production you you know, the arguments and the, the, the conversations, you realize, like, actually, it's a TV film. And the artist in me is just like, no, it should be in a frigging cinema, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, and then you realize years later, like, nah, it shouldn't be in a cinema, what the hell, it's a TV, it's a solid, good TV film. But only time and experience teaches you to back down off your ego. Mm.
1: Their second film, Foul Play, about game fixing in Southeast Asian football, did better than they expected and paid for itself.
0: That's considered a full lengthy film, but as I was making, it came pretty clear this is straight up a TV film. It's a classic thing of we're making a film, not too sure of the final kind of shape of it and how it's going to look, but as we're getting more footage, as the shoots are coming in, we're like, yeah, this is definitely a TV film. And it did a lot better than I thought it would. So i was very happy with that. It got bought by Amazon in the US, so that's cool iFlix in Asia, and then a few local broadcasters across Europe. And so I was quite happy with that. That was enough for me. It obviously won't pay us loads of money at all. But the sheer fact that I managed to prove that I can come up with an idea, make it and get it sold and distributed the whole way through pretty much by myself was like, great.
1: At the same time, SRK was raising funds for South Africa started Graffiti Asia, a project that would turn into the Sticker bomb book series, a celebration of street art that got legs and is still around 15
0: years later. We were trying to get some money together to commission a program. We'd done our Japanese hip-hop documentary because we'd worked a lot with street artists and graffiti writers and we knew that there was another story in Japanese graffiti. We wanted to do a program on it and, you know, we Spoke to a lot of production companies, a lot of broadcasters. We're like mid 20s. So they're like, yeah, whatever, whatever. And there's a very famous German cool publisher called Die Gestalten and they do a lot of great art books and they'd just done a book and DVD concept. We were amazed with this product. So we're like, we could, we could do that. We could do the film and just do a book with it really easy. So all we did was reel off 10 emails to every single publisher in London. And then three, four of them got back to me and I was just like, what? And then we just had a meeting with Lawrence King and then just completely got on with them. I was like 26 and they've known me for the last 15 years.
1: Cold outreach, Shaz. It's your superpower.
0: (laughs) Maybe it is. I might make a note of that. Cold outreach is my superpower. Yeah, that was it. I mean, I am actually writing that down. Uh, (laughs) It it basically means that every now and then when we've had a shit few months, it's okay because we might get a royalty check of an X amount through. And that's pretty cool, basically. And that just keeps us going it's quite a weird one sticker one, because every time we try to monetize it in other ways from fashion, stock, imagery to everything, it doesn't work. It only works as a collection of images. It's, it's hilarious. We've tried so many ways of, oh yeah, business hats on. We'll do X, Y, Z. We'll try this. We'll try this. like, doesn't work. Just simply doesn't work. But when it, it works well as a collection of images presented in a book format, for people to buy in a shop. Basically, that's it. It took us a long time to get there, but that's where it works. You can try and put a, it was it, round peg in a square hole or whatever, but the end of the day, the audience likes this. This is what they buy. This is what they've always bought. And you can try X, Y, and Z, but this is what they want. To start a fashion company, you need a lot more than just a few designs on a T-shirt, basically. It's an anomaly to us, Stickerbomb, because every literally every single time we try and do something extra. We did okay trying to sell art and doing a few shows. That was pretty cool. But again, the effort, the time, the money to put on events isn't, isn't that easy. Again, it's like another asset that just pays its way. It pays for the time of us putting it together and putting it out there, and it gives a few more artists a bit of profile. So it's, I like to think of it as just... For a lot of artists around the world, once they get in a Stickerbomb book, it's cool. We've got that. What's next? We've seen tons of artists come and go, you know, tons of artists would not even want to be in a Stickerbomb book now, but at a time they aspired to it, they got it and then they moved on. So that's pretty cool. And I just think with a lot of contemporary culture, you need to have the ear of younger people. Essentially. They should be out there living and breathing it, partying until, whatever 6am every single day and breathing it. I, I think if you profess to working this, it's important to get there here.
1: Graffiti Asia is how Shaz first came to Southeast Asia, then stayed for the next decade.
0: Me and Rio just took a few months off to travel for three months across China down to Jakarta, just meeting the scenes, just getting involved, taking pictures, interviewing people, and just having some fun, basically. Um, halfway through the trip, um, I took a week off, but I got a call while I was in Vietnam and we got the funding to do a Soccer Africa. We literally came back from our three month trip in Asia, had to finish the book, finish the 25 minutes short with it, and then kick into production for Soccer Africa, which we worked on for a solid year. And I basically didn't sleep for a year. It was crazy shooting in France, South Africa, Cameroon, Belgium. France France England did a lot of shooting did a lot of editing and literally a year later i handed the hard drive over and then got a flight to bangkok to visit some friends and then basically didn't come back and then went traveling and then went to cambodia siem reap siem reap where i met my potential wife leah who was working over there she actually managed to wangle me a job so i ended up staying in cambodia and then thought god england winter was coming needed a break from the UK and went back to England, sorted out loads of crap and then went straight back to Asia. Jakarta is where I started actually learning the business of probably advertising because in my world, I didn't understand. I didn't, we're just people who make stuff. A lot of my friends are DJs, producers, artists. We just make stuff and then basically just try and stay alive making stuff. Got to Jakarta and then I realized, oh, we can shoot, we can do stuff. We just landed those contracts that you can't, very easily get in the uk so i was landing nike jobs and adidas jobs and just bigger clients and that was like wow we can make a good living doing what we love doing hanging around with football players who'd shop loads so we know the sport we know the culture around the sport and in jakarta i started going to singapore loads at the time a lot of stuff was getting commissioned out of singapore so it's quite common for me to meet the marketing teams and the digital marketing teams and the events teams and just the people setting the job up from Singapore and then go back to the local territories and just execute. That is how we thought about moving to Singapore but I couldn't do it yet because I'm not the biggest kind of advocate of Singapore in that sense. We wanted some more fun, me and my missus, so we moved to Bangkok. Bangkok is tough, it's a tough place to just land and work but we immediately was roped into run out art gallery. It was it was called the space, not the most creative name, but we, we were given that name to work with. And it was quite good for us because we actually ended up working for one of the most famous photographers on the planet. His name is James Natway, and he was an old Vietnam War photographer. So again we just fell on our feet we'd just be given this gallery and the boss of the gallery is essentially one of like the most famous photographers around. And so we just did a lot of learning, curating. We just put on films, we put on shows. And then after a couple years of having too much fun, because Bangkok can do that to you, we felt the need to go serious and then came Singapore.
1: Shaz and I met because while I was in advertising, he reached out to me on LinkedIn. I've always maintained that his was one of the best cold
0: outreach I'd ever received. I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate that. I, I think to be honest, cold calling and cold emailing, I'm so used to doorstepping people with a camera when I was younger, but there's a reason to connect with someone. So just be sincere about that. That's essentially it. You can read tons of medium articles, but generally it's like, there's a reason you need to speak to that person and you provide to that person. And that's why you want to connect with that person. So just say whatever needs to be said in a sincere tone. It's not brain surgery. Singapore was our attempt at running a business. It's quite funny. I look back at it and realize how well we did. Obviously, we're a small business. Tons of mistakes, of course, tons of mistakes. We all made mistakes. But we actually did a fairly decent job basically. But the the decision to leave was a great good decision in terms of like sanity, health, mental health, just creativity. It was just a, it was a good move.
1: Studio SRK was unique in Singapore for their vibe and connection to various art scenes. They had a great roster of clients, and it was a surprise when they decided to wind down after only a couple of years.
0: I was out drinking one evening with another content agency, and then I realized what we were creating was essentially what they have, and I wasn't happy with that. And, that, and they were doing well, so it's not criticism about them, they were quite happy with their business model, but it set off a trigger in my head like, wow, like I don't want what they have. I really just don't want, to. I never wanted that in my life. What am I doing? The trigger from it was seeing that at the end of the day, if you push and play it out, even with the most massive success, I, I was just not going to be happy at all with where I was going at all. Like at all, It wasn't cool where we we're at. Bar the drinking loads, I can actually deal with the drinking loads. It was the stressing at 9am every single morning about staff, about jobs, about clients, about payroll, and you can handle all of those things if it's the stuff you love and it's the stuff you're trying to achieve. And it's like your film, but when it's other people's stuff, this is just not worth it in any capacity, basically just all of those things combined. This is just not happening. This is just not happening at all. We had a new generation of staff coming to the office, like about two, three people didn't like any of them. <laughs> it's just like, and they weren't bad at their job. I just didn't like them. Just didn't like them as humans. I didn't like them as workers. But you hired them. Just didn't them. like them. Yeah, I know. So this is where I was like, I don't think I made a bad decision in the hires. They're not bad at their jobs. I just didn't like them. When you start hiring people you don't like, you're like, something's up here. Basically, <laughs> exactly. I don't like anyone in my office that I have hired. I might have fucked up here. There was a couple of people who I still adore, and I think they did an amazing job. I'll shout them out. Shout out Gillian, shout out Pearl, if you do ever watch this. But aside from them, I was like looking around going, what am I doing? What are we doing? What's going on here? And that is when you realise sometimes a business is faster than you. You know, when you're younger, putting together your mission documents and your vision documents of what the business should be like, you never really realise why it's important until shit hits the fan and it's too late and you realise, oh, that's why I have a mission and that's why I have a vision. Because when... Contracts are coming and going. You're dealing with HR, payroll, you're dealing with tax, you're dealing with accountants, you're dealing with clients, you're dealing with mispayments payments and blah, 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 you forget those things. And I think that's what was very important. A massive important learning curve for me, basically. And that's what I'm taking on board right now in my life, taking what I think I did wrong there and not making those mistakes again, basically.
1: What's your mission?
0: Before we left, uh, and I think it's to do with age group. Before we left the UK, I'm really proud of some of the work we did. And it had to do with street art, graffiti, had to do with music scenes. We were part of the scenes. We were in them. Our friends were going out painting, doing good things and bad things. Our friends were out DJing and producing every single night. So your whole life is geared towards the scenes you live in. That this DJ is playing at 11 PM down in South London. So everything's geared towards the culture. So we were living in it and we existed in it. And therefore, the work we produced reflected that. And it was very easy for us. But then once you leave that, you're starting to look for subjects and topics to make and do things about. And I think that's where the mission and the vision gets a little bit kind of screwy.
1: Speaking of scenes, Soy Music TV was a two-year project documenting the music scene in Asian cities. This is an example of how a project can be great but still needs Scene. Oh, i love
0: that project i look back at my time in singapore that's what i should have pushed I and mean, you look back hindsight's an amazing thing that's what i should have pushed for additional funding to like explode but music in asia is quite disparate it's quite a hard thing get under one roof it's it's i think it's quite people find it's uh, so a whole conversation sway music right there I was really happy with the project and I think we did a really good job. I just think we needed help. and I think it maybe left a little sour taste because if I was in the UK or the US or maybe other parts of Asia, I would have got the help. Whereas in Singapore, I never felt there was that much help around. There just isn't a scene to tap into, to take the energy off. So I've been part of a few kind of different music things going on over my years and there just wasn't that thing to just take the pressure off. I love covering scenes. It's quite an interesting time because traditional scenes don't exist like they used to. And that's not not me trying to sound like an old person, which I probably do. But (laughs) I don't understand. I don't truly understand how it works now in terms of how the way music is disseminated.
1: With a renewed focus, Shaz is working on becoming relevant again.
0: Now, right now, I was talking to Rhea about this, and our, our mission is just to make essentially relevant pieces of work again. We were much more relevant the work we are making, whether it be politicised work about human rights like Soccer Africa or about music scenes like Basway or street art and graffiti. It was very relevant. And I think that's why they did well and sold well and got us the, the small minor bits of press that we did get. Since then, we've been fighting to try and make it relevant again. And, and you realise that actually, if you make work That's relevant to other people just join. And that's a really cool thing. That's where I think places like Singapore is very difficult to be super creative. Creativity flourishes in massively tolerant places. They're, They're not criticizing someone because of whatever they're doing. Tolerance is like the most important thing. I think you also need living and breathing scenes that are legitimate, basically. And so those are the two things where I think Singapore finds it very difficult. Technology and talents, they're in abundance. But it's just the other side of it, basically. The worst thing about me just as a person individually is like, I I am an entrepreneur. I am a creative and I'm an entrepreneur. And my whole life I feel is about reconciling both of these things. The lucky thing is that a film in itself is a business. And the minute you understand that film by itself, a title, a single film is a business. And if you can get your kind of entrepreneurial kicks out of that, then it's fine. But it's a hard thing because I'm always like going, oh, yeah, we could do that. You could do that. And that's like the entrepreneur hustler in me. But right now, those things are very distracting. It has to be about focus mode, basically. Um, It's not just all films, but all relevant output. That's how I'm putting it right now. It's just all culturally relevant or politically relevant or just relevant output is how I'm putting it.
1: It was a move to Seattle that helped Shaz come back to the filmmaking he loved.
0: And then we had the opportunity to go to Seattle, basically. And that was a combination of my father-in-law was a bit ill and my missus wanted to be near him. And I was like, wow, we have an opportunity to live in the States. Just take it. Went back to the States or went to the States. And then from my point of view, it blew my mind because I was like, oh fuck yeah, this is it. Everyone was like massively creative. Everyone is up for every single project. Everyone is just like up for doing stuff. And I was like. It's the complete opposite and everything I'd just been through, basically. So it was very easy for me to just slot in to Seattle. There was like tons of artists. There's like stuff happening all the time. So it was very easy for me to get working. I came up with a concept for a film, Soda Express, which is what we're close to finishing right now. I just fresh come into Seattle. I'm just this one dude. I just start meeting people and then bang. On Instagram, someone contacts me, the lead actor in my film, Ezra. You did this. You live in Seattle. What are you doing here? Do you want to have a coffee? And I says, yeah, I do. And then basically he became the lead actor in my film. To be brutally honest, I don't know if I messaged him or he messaged me, but Seattle's a small place. So it's quite easy to see via Instagram and via walking around the streets. Oh, who's the graffiti writers? These are the galleries. These are the clubs. Oh, this is the scene. contact a few people want to meet up for a coffee because I'm new in town. And this is what I want to do. And people are like, yeah, I'm up for it. And then suddenly, I'm making a film in some crazy parts of Seattle, and that's why I was I rekindled my love of film and art and creativity. Basically, it was really important for me. So you're back. Um, it did feel like so. A lot of my older friends have that in their kind of backstory. That film, which is their kind of therapy, if you like. So this is like my therapy piece. It's quite cool because it's like. Yeah, I don't know, I think a lot of creatives, artists have therapy pieces basically, because they'll they'll finish one phase of their life and then they'll get out a lot of emotion and a lot of kind of energy in one piece. For me, my only desires and wants for it is for the right so-called people to see it, the commissioners, other production houses. So I don't care if a thousand people see it, but those thousand people are like good people who give a damn.
1: Okay, in a creative career like yours, Would you choose talent over passion or vice versa?
0: And why? Oh, talent over passion. That's actually a good question. Talent over passion. I'm thinking about the people who I know have been super talented but have no passion. Oh yeah, I've actually, I've had two good friends who are like some of the two most talented people I've ever worked with and they had no passion for what they did and they have not succeeded and aren't happy. So I would probably go for passion because I have two examples in my life of two people who are so talented and they had no passion. One is an illustrator artist. The other was a filmmaker, but they both came from the artist, his family artist and the filmmaker family were filmmakers and photographers and they had everything laid out and they had the talent. They just couldn't give a damn about it, basically. So I'd choose passion. I'd choose passion if I was employing them, definitely. Yeah. Because passion means you can learn. And talent is quite often wrapped up with ego. Which is fine. And ego ego's fine, I think people have a people are quite down on the ego, but ego's fine. So I go for passion right now. Fuck, I might go back on that later. But right now, yeah, it's like 60-40, 60-40 passion talent. That's that's how I'm feeling. (laughs) It's only recently I've only been able to call myself a filmmaker. Because I think I'll meet a lot of people who call themselves filmmakers and they haven't made a film, and that really winds me up. Maybe they've made one piece of video content, but if they haven't suffered, they haven't suffered. And if they don't know, they don't know. It's a hard thing to describe, but when you're a filmmaker, It's only recently I can say like, yeah, I've done a few feature things under my belt. Yeah, some have sold, some haven't, but there's a bit of a track record. So now it's about building on top of that. But how does it all come together? Not 100% sure. I like to think that there'll slowly be some kind of bringing it together over the next few years. So I'll let you know how that goes. We'll probably be sitting in a bar in Singapore or Manila talking about it.
1: Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So subscribe today at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.